This episode is made possible by our generous patrons. To learn more, visit patreon.com forward slash ink to film. Welcome to the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm James. And I'm Luke. And this week, with the help of special guest Fonda Lee, we discuss Francis Ford Coppola's 1972 film, The Godfather. bit of housekeeping before we get to our conversation with Fonda. Uh, we are having a last looks episode coming up at the end of the year and which we're going to be looking back at all of the projects that we covered and, and also answering any questions that people might have. Yeah, I really enjoyed doing this last year and we only had a few projects at the beginning of last year. Yeah, a lot so more. So we have a lot more. So if you have any questions, definitely send them our way. Yeah, any sort of things you want us to, to uh, weigh in on, like maybe, uh, you know, we, we might list, you know, standouts, things like that. But yeah, send them our way and you can look for that episode right at the end of the year. All right. And here's our conversation with Fonda Lee. We want to welcome back to the show, award-winning author of Jade City, Fonda Lee. Hey guys, good to be back. It's great to have you back. We, uh, you're our special guest for a trilogy of episodes. Uh, and, and we're right in the middle here. And, and I think this is going to be an awesome one because we got to cover a classic movie that I got to watch for the first time. Yeah, this um, series of podcasts gave me the excuse to binge the entire trilogy again. So thanks for that. <laughs> Took nice. up like an entire day of my life, which I was happy to give up to rewatch the films. Luke, I actually had forgotten that you hadn't seen it. So that's kind of like a huge deal. So, <laughs> I mean, let's start with you. And I want to hear just like very quickly, it, did it hold up? to what you expected it and how how crazy was it for you so so talking about uh expectations right um this is a movie that that everyone just raves about right it's a classic it's one of the best movies made of all time um and so i went in like with the highest of expectations expecting it to come in and like become my favorite movie like that level right um and so for me it was like 99% there like i i i um i loved it it was very good i I was astounded by the performances. I could tell the craft was was incredible. Uh, it just, I don't know, like uh, probably just because it's of when it was made and so, sort of like where cinema has gone since then. Um, it felt slightly dated at times um, to where, I don't know, it just didn't quite hit like my, it's not my favorite movie now, but I did, I definitely loved it. And, and I will, will rave about many scenes and many performances as we go forward. I hope that's not a bummer that it's not my favorite movie, but it's 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 very good. <laughs> well, it's one of those things where it's like you kind of expect a certain level of when, when something is so hyped, yeah, like that for people. It's like it's kind of hard to live up to that. But Fonda, how was so you had you took a full day to to watch all three, right? Yeah, I mean, me? I, this is by no means the first time I've seen the film, but for me, it's like a comfort watch now because mm. you know I watched it so long ago and. Um, I'm so familiar with the material and with the book now um, that when I watch it, it's like just revisiting these these favorite characters, these favorite scenes. So um, it was it was very comforting and nostalgic for me to sink back into um, that film. And I find I like it more each time I watch it um, mm. and find more little things that uh, that catch my attention and. Um, I just get deeper into it. So 
uh, yeah, it's, it's, we talked last week about uh, the book and I mentioned how, you know, for me, the book has its moments of brilliance, but it's very uneven and has so many flaws in it as well. Uh, the mm. movie is, is just to me, this, this masterpiece and, um, I will, I'll just rave about it because, um, it is, like I said last week, one of the few properties that I would say, um, is a situation where the film exceeds the book. Mm. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, James, I wanted to find out what, cause I feel like we've both talked about it now, Fonda and I, but what, what was your relationship with this movie? I must, I know you've seen it before, but did you study this film in your, in your, in your classes or, or what? Yes. Yeah, so, so, well, I'll talk about that in a second, but first I want to touch on I, I, the fact that I don't think I've seen it quite as many times as Fonda. Um, it doesn't feel that familiar to me. I, I've seen it enough to like kind of know the big plot points and stuff. Um, so reading the book was, was really fun to get like more of that really precise, like understanding what characters were doing and all those little things. So I think that actually heightened my, my viewing this time of it. But yeah, it, it's one of those movies where it is, it is like when you go to film school or when you study film in any way, it's a film that comes up. It has to because of so many of these scenes being the example that you point to of like intercutting editing or scenes of just like showing instead of telling and, and all of these, these, there's so many reasons why this, this movie is studied. And I think that two scenes specifically to me stand out and, and um, it's the last scene, basically the last scene and the scene in the middle with with Michael meeting with the with Salazzo and and the uh, police. When you say the last when you say the last scene, which one are you talking about? The baptism. Okay. So I'll talk about that a little more later. Yeah, yeah. So, but like just in terms of of studying this movie, you can probably break down every scene, and each one could be an hour long episode. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I'm not going to be able to talk that much about all of the specifics. I think this time I really really appreciated it to its full capacity. And I think like Fondo is saying, each time I do enjoy it more. We often read book, I mean, we always read the book before we see the movie. It often turns out that I haven't seen the movie and in my first experience is coming in through the novel. Um, so th- that was interesting for this movie in particular, I think, because it did feel, this is one of the first times where I felt like I was missing a little bit of the surprise that should have been there because I knew it was coming. Um, especially like a lot of those scenes where there's like a shocking twist. I had already kind of had the shocking twist, but I was able to do what like what I did with The Shining where I was able to sort of f- pay more attention to what's going on from like a filmmaking point of view um, rather than like getting caught up in the plot. Um, but I wonder if that maybe affected my viewing experience a little bit too, like having all that foreknowledge. I think that's something that for me, uh, usually the first time I watch a film, I'm really focused on plot, characters, and just overall what I thought of the movie. And then upon reviewing is when you really break it down as like a, and you look at it as a film, like you said, like elements that went into the filmmaking and shot selection and blocking and editing and some of those other things. You can notice that on a first viewing, but I always feel like with repeat viewings, like you say, you can, you can kind of, at least when you know the material, you can really break down that other stuff. Yeah. I can definitely appreciate Luke that you would come in and the film wouldn't be able to live up to the reputation that, um, it has pers- when when you come in having already been exposed to the amount of Godfather kind of pop culture that's just sort of in the general miasma of uh, of the world because you have already heard so many of those iconic lines being. Mm. Um, spoofed or just quoted, and you know, obviously, you read the read the book. So there's um, 
I, I think for most people, the film is the entry point. Yeah. There's so many lines um, in this film that have just made their way into, you know, everything from The Simpsons to South Park to <laughs> television commercials <laughs> that it's it, it would certainly almost seem um, anticlimactic to then go back to the original material because it's it's been uh, quoted so much. I think that is probably part of what happened for me. Um, I do. I did love the movie still. And I and I absolutely recognized its brilliance and. It, fe- it feels like a really important piece of cinematic history, which sounds kind of dry, but it was. <laughs> and, 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 it, and it was exciting to watch it for that reason. Um, but yeah, I guess a little bit of the plot maybe has been spoiled. And some of those iconic lines uh, have been have turned into cliches at this point, right? That's kind of unfortunate. But yeah, I was still able to really appreciate it and really enjoy watching it. The other thing is that I've been reading Jade City and I couldn't help but make all these connections, which I'd love to talk about as we go on or maybe at the end. But I was I was thinking like, oh, this character is kind of like this character. And maybe you know, I wonder what, you know, if this was in your mind when you were when you were writing. So uh, I'd love to talk about a little bit of that at the end. Yeah, there's a there's a lot to unpack there, because obviously there was, <laughs> um, you know, a lot of elements of this story um, influenced my own writing um, to some extent. And. A lot of other things also influenced it. Um, so, mm. you know, the book also pulls from um, from the wuxia genre, from gangster films in Asia, from epic fantasy. But the elements that people recognize the most are the Godfather ones, because that is the property that is most well known. Um, mm. And obviously, I, I wanted to to incorporate some of um, the inspiration there and then take it in a totally different direction. But we can also talk about that later. Looking forward to it. Okay, so I think this is probably a good time to uh, move into some stuff about Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah. And kind of what went into why this film is so important and what it did for for films and cinema in general for decades to come. Francis Ford Coppola is an American film director, producer, screenwriter, and film composer. He was a central figure in the new Hollywood wave of filmmaking. Uh, After directing The Rain People in 1969, he wrote the 1970 film Patton, earning the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. And then his directorial prominence was cemented with the release of The Godfather in 1972, a film which revolutionized movie making in the gangster genre, earning praise from both critics and the public before winning three Academy Awards, including his second Oscar, Best Adapted for Best Adapted Screenplay with Mario Puzo, uh, Best Picture, and his first nomination for Best Director. He would also go on to later direct Apocalypse Now, among other things, mm. which is something that I would like to cover at some point. Yeah, we, and uh, it's basically an adaptation of Heart of Darkness, uh, so I think we could. Okay, so so I wanted to talk to you guys a little bit about this new Hollywood wave. This is this, These are some filmmakers that we've mentioned before, and I've actually kind of touched on some of this stuff, but basically it is in the 70s, what, what happened was the fall of the studio systems in the 60s led to students of film, people who were studying film in universities and things like that, having a, a closer access point to becoming directors in the industry rather than having to climb this ladder of the uh, kind of like studio stifling creativity and things like that. So mm-hmm. we get, so we start to see this, like these young bearded filmmakers come to prominence. <laughs> so we're t- the, there's a, there's a couple of them that you might recognize. And these are all Francis Ford Coppola's contemporaries and friends that he, that he works with. Um, Spielberg, Lucas, Scorsese, Brian De Palma, John Milius, and Paul Schrader. So, okay. what about Kubrick? I thought I, I'm surprised you didn't mention Kubrick in there. 
Well, Kubrick isn't a contemporary of his. I would say Kubrick is somebody that he looks up to. He was the generation before. Coppola. Oh, Kubrick was before. Okay. Yeah. Really? Because Kubrick started in the 50s, basically. I listened to an interview with uh, with Francis Ford Coppola, and he was um, saying that at the time, um, Hollywood was going through some, some rocky um, situations because the heyday of cinema kind of um, been seen at that point as being kind of like the 30s and 40s um, was over. And there was this this sense that television was going to put cinema out of business. And uh, which is just hilarious to even imagine that that was a fear. Um, mm. But it was a real fear at the time that like television was the new thing. People were going to stop going to the movies. And um, Coppola really felt like, you know, he had to take on The Godfather for financial reasons. Like his his film studio at the time, um, Zootrope, um, was in a situation where he just needed the money. Um, and uh, he said at, that he basically spent like the entire filming of The Godfather in fear of losing his job. And he's just stressed and it was a nightmarish experience the entire time. Wow. Yeah. So... So let's touch on some of that really quickly. The um, Coppola, uh, when making this film, he was he was a young filmmaker, so he wasn't the first choice for this for to adapt The Godfather. There were other names in the running. I can't remember right now, but basically he wasn't the first choice. When they finally selected him, that's when Mario Puzo's Godfather became a smash hit. So then they realized they were going to be able to make a pretty profitable movie off of it potentially. Something that he did that was kind of unique that I wanted to talk about was his uh, in his prep. Normally what you do as a filmmaker is you have a line script, which is like you kind of like line, draw a line where a scene starts and where it ends on the script. And then there's a shot list and a director has their beat breakdown, which is like the emotions of each character, like it would be a beat. Hmm. Um, so those are the things that normally a filmmaker will have. And Coppola uh, created a prompt book, which is normally an, like an older theater technique where you actually take the script and then you put like a border of margins around it. And then he just would write notes and notes and notes. And uh, interestingly enough, he eventually released that book years later so that we could see all of his little notes, everything that he wrote with The Godfather relating oh, to cool. the actual source material, which which is pretty interesting. So to get back to him almost losing his job constantly, uh, he, Paramount was worried that he was spending too much money on, on testing. Uh, they didn't agree with a lot of his casting choices, so they didn't like Marlon Brando. They didn't like Al Pacino. <laughs> didn't like Marlon Brando? <laughs> Yep, and so they he had to fight. They had to fight to keep Brando. Wow. So they they he was constantly every decision that they he made they were trying to like basically counteract that and do something different. And he eventually turned in the movie under budget and on time. They also, I believe, wanted to film in St. Louis instead of New York. Yeah. To save oh, wow. money, and they wanted to make it contemporary, like in the 1970s, as opposed to the 19. 19- Fifties um, in order to save money again. So uh, I, I got the sense that the the studio envisioned this more as like a low budget gangster flick, and uh, Coppola had this vision that it was much more than that. That it was this uh, you know this tale of power and succession and Shakespearean in its scope and its ambition. And obviously his his vision won out, but it sounds like he went through. Um, Helen back in order to be able to realize that vision. Yeah, he definitely did. And as a young filmmaker, I can't believe that he was able to push a studio into creating this vision that he wanted and, and carried it all the way through. He did have the one advantage of being Italian. 
And that <laughs> had a uh, that had had some effect on it because I think at the, at the time he had not directed very many movies yet, um, and the studio, uh, you know, like James said, did not consider him their first choice. Um, but you know, it's interesting now because a lot of uh, commentators have mentioned that the fact that Coppola's um, background as an Italian American and uh, you know him growing up in that culture contributed to the sense of authenticity in the film. And we'll talk about mm. these later, but there's so many sort of scenes of just family life and domesticity, whether it's the f- wedding scene or like scenes of you know the characters in their living room eating dinner. And a lot of Italian American actors who came afterwards said that that film was um, felt very authentic and it was like one of the first times they'd kind of really seen themselves authentically portrayed. Some of those scenes in particular are ones I wrote down that stood out to me uh, because that's something that I think came across on the film even stronger than the book was this sort of authentic experience. And like the wedding scene in particular was so rich and there was so much going on and so many uh, little performances by side characters that were really striking them. Just yeah, I really felt like uh, transported to this to this culture and this this uh, I guess world, and and it it was very effective. Yeah, and I think it gives like a certain, even though they're gangsters, it gives like a certain humanity to oh, yeah. these characters to see them eating together and living together and joking and at the wedding. It's just very human things that that people experience. One of the things that struck me about the the film and the book is the fact that the film kind of distills down the best parts of the book. Um, Coppola actually said that when he first read The Godfather, he was hoping for um, a novel that really kind of got at themes of like power and sort of like he, he was looking for for something in there that he could really like get his handle on as a, as a filmmaker. And his first reaction to the book was kind of like, Oh, it's interesting, but it's kind of trashy. Like, you know, there's like <laughs> these these yeah. parts that are sort of just got some sleazy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so he, you know, he he definitely picked up on what we did last week, which was sort of the pulp aspect, and mm-hmm. um, he wasn't immediately taken by the novel. And it was um, it was obviously a very successful novel and went on to be a bestseller, and uh, it you know became very popular. But um, he had in mind, he basically told the studio, like, yeah, I'll make it, but it's not going to be a gangster flick. It's going to be this family chronicle, and it's going to be about succession, and it's going to be a metaphor for America. Which was, Hmm. when you think about it, Mario Puzo started out as a, um, a writer that was writing these critically acclaimed books that weren't selling that well. So he wrote a novel that he thought would just be kind of more popular and trashy, if you will, and, uh, and would sell more and be commercial, which he did. But then Coppola then took that and distilled it back down into its, like, it, its higher level themes and made it a work of art. So there's, there's sort of this weird sort of this, um, this interesting journey with the material. Uh, if you, if, you know, if you could imagine this like author who wants to make art, but then makes something that he thinks is just going to be popular that then gets turned into a film that is both artistic and popular. <laughs> yeah. That reminds me of Jaws. 
James. Do you remember we that was essentially but Peter Benchley wrote a novel just to make money. And it was and also very trashy elements in that original novel that get cut out of the film. And then Spielberg comes in and makes this like landmark movie that goes on to change the way blockbusters are are viewed. Right. Yeah. I think the only thing that I would say is that, like, I think Jaws was like I think Spielberg realized that Jaws was pulpy and still made it pulpy. No, or, it, and it still I mean? is. But but uh, I think I don't know. I feel like that's a well-regarded movie these days. Right. Yeah, no. It's not that it's not a great film. I just think that the serious tone, it's not like completely sure. taken seriously, whereas this is just an epic drama film. Yeah. And I can't wait to talk about the performances, even though I'm sure that's been talked about a million times. But as a first time viewer, like I'm dying to talk about performances. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. A couple of, th- I wanted to go back around to the uh, new Hollywood wave stuff. The, the reason I bring up all those people that he- were his contemporaries is, um, a lot of them worked together, helped in the edit rooms, did uh, second unit stuff for them. And something that I wanted to mention is that there is a there's a sequence in this film. And I don't know if you know this or not, Fonda. So if you do, don't tell Luke. But there's a sequence in this <laughs> film that is was put together by George Lucas. And I want to see if you can if, if you think you know which one it is, Luke or Fonda, if you don't know. Put together by what do you mean put together by? So it's a, I, without I think it would like give away too much it? if I said like I don't he, want to say what that. I would just want to say like he put it together. So okay. So what what feels like George Lucas to me? Do you do you know Fonda? I don't. I'm very curious. So what feels like it was George Lucas? No, I I mean well because he he had just he was doing Star Wars at the time. I wonder if it's the uh, is it the Sicily stuff? Nope. Okay. Well, I don't know then. But good guess. No good guess. Uh, Fonda, do you have a guess? Oh gosh, you gotta tell me. Okay, so the. Uh, there's a montage that starts when the war happens, right? And there's a montage of like crime pictures and like footage of oh, all yeah. of the men in the houses together with the, oh, and the, was, spinning, the, people. the spinning, yeah, the spinning newspaper <laughs> headlines. Yeah. That's that was George Lucas took like some footage that they had from other things, put it together with like some of the some actual like one of the one of the pictures in, on the newspaper is an actual picture of like one of Al Capone's men who like committed suicide. Really, it looked like he had been like murdered or something. So they put all that together to create this montage of the war, and that was George Lucas did that as a favor. to to Coppola for um, helping him get funding for American Graffiti, which was the movie that eventually allowed him to have the the pull in order to make Star Wars. Wow. I have two questions about pronunciation that are occurring to me. Is it Coppola or Coppola? I say Coppola, and I just said Coppola a second ago, but I (laughs) normally say Coppola. We don't know what the official pronunciation is? I say, like I said, I say Coppola. That's what I think it is. I, I probably have said it like three different ways. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other one is Corleone and Corleone, which I noticed they kind of say both in the movie. Different characters. Yeah. And there's another pronunciation that I worried about that's consigliere and conciliary. They oh. say both of those in the film as well. Okay. So it's not like we're getting them wrong. They they just depends on the character at the I time. Think so, I think so, because I'm pretty sure at one point Marlon Brando's Don says consigliere. Anyway, I don't know if that's interesting, but <laughs> I just wanted to clear it up. <laughs> There's a letter that was, and this kind of touches on some stuff that you were talking about, Fonda. There's a letter that that Coppola wrote to Brando, Marlon Brando, mm-hmm. before he was officially in the role, and and there were like rumblings that he was going to get the role, and Coppola was push, Coppola was pushing for that. I'm going to say both. <laughs> I, I've screwed just you to, up. Sorry. <laughs> just to emphasize the fact that you could say both. <laughs> um, so uh, he sent a letter to Brando, and it was basically just saying, like, please do the role. And I don't know if you guys know, but Brando was, like, legendarily hard to work with. He was, like, very stubborn. Um, I didn't know that. He had a temper. There's a lot of, it, like, he's not very easy to work with. So a lot of studios didn't want to work with him at this point. And um, 
he was uh, anyway he was trying to lobby for him to get the role and in the in the letter he's basically saying like please please be don corleone and i also want you to know that i guess they had talked about it previously but he, he said i also want you to know that the film uh the mafia in the film is a metaphor for america and capitalism and just the idea that it will do anything to protect and perpetuate itself. It's kind of inside baseball to know what the filmmaker intended. I, sometimes I don't like to necessarily know, but thought it was interesting that he and Brando felt that the mafia was meant to be capitalism in America. Well, that sounds like what Fonda was saying about about it being this metaphor for America. Um, I can totally see that. Yeah. Yeah. As well as the immigrant story, I think that it's it's like an it's a not even a metaphor it really is just the immigrant story of of coming to america and doing whatever you can to succeed and the the idea of sticking together with your family and and uh trying to do the like have the best life that you can in america yeah i think in many ways and we'll get to this next week godfather part two is even more coppola's film than godfather part one godfather part one still stays very true to puzo's um, story and to the book mm. uh, without um, you know including all the parts that were not necessary to the to the main plot line but Godfather part two Coppola at this point had proven himself with Godfather part one and he had more artistic freedom with part mm. two and that's where those themes of uh, power and excess and the immigrant story really come to the fore, even more so, I would say, than in part one. Wow. I'm really excited to watch that one. Uh, yeah, because I was kind of expecting more departures than we got. Like like you said, it's very faithful. Um, it just, They really just cut some stuff out, but they didn't add much in as far as like new scenes, right? It was all stuff from the book, uh, which I was kind of surprised to see. But uh, yeah, I'm excited to watch part two because it sounds like that's where it really kind of diverges a little bit or adds more to the story, at least. I have at times wondered if The Godfather was to be adapted today, whether it would have been adapted as a film or potentially as a miniseries or mm -hmm. as an HBO series, because there's so much. And in fact, um, it's, a, it's a, almost a three hour movie and mm -hmm. a lot happens and it's only on repeated viewings that i really and having read the book that i can remember and appreciate a lot of the minor characters that come in and only play relatively small roles like tessio and you know uh, mcclowski i mean they actually get very little screen time because so much has to happen in this movie and um coppola he initially sent um a a print of the film that was like two hours and some minutes, two hours and 10 minutes, because he was, um, you know, he, he had so much stuff and he was worried that they were going to take the film away from him if, if uh, it went too long. And then the reaction was, well, there, this isn't enough. Like it's not, um, it, it, it's too condensed and feels mm. more like a trailer. So then he put the additional like half an hour plus back in. And back then, if a movie got to three hours, they would put an intermission in. So the plan was to put an intermission in after Michael kills um, uh, the Turk and the police officer and has to flee. So mm -hmm. there was going to be a break at that point. And the decision was made not to do that. So they kept it under three hours, barely, and went without an intermission in order to not dilute the impact of seeing it mm. in one viewing. But I can imagine today um, a 
you know, someone saying, you know, this book has so much in it and there's all these characters that could be even more fleshed out. Here's an example, Luca Brasi, right? He yeah. is... Uh, he's actually on the screen for very little time and um, is one of those characters that uh, his his mythos in the book doesn't really fully come across in the film because you Agreed. don't get all that backstory. You don't actually know much about him before he's knocked off by Solozo. So um, you can imagine a situation in which this book had been turned into a mini series and each of those minor characters got even more. As it is, it's amazing that they managed to put that much, that clearly into a three hour film uh, because I think it takes repeated viewings to even realize some of the small things that are going on. I wonder if the density of ideas that they're trying to get ac across there leads to some of this like groundbreaking filmmaking because it was like every scene had to achieve so many different things and bringing up characters and 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 and, and every th plot line needs to be developed and we're it's all having to happen and we're having to condense this big story down to down to three hours. Um, maybe those pressures kind of you know form the diamond that is this movie. I think that's true, and it, it feels like a tight film and yet it isn't cinematically yeah. so like it has um plenty of these long shots that play out in a way that probably wouldn't in today's uh kind of prevailing cinematic philosophy where there's a lot more quick cuts and you're scene changing a lot more but there's a lot of scenes that that are allowed to go on and just the um, the amount of plot that is covered in three hours is pretty astounding. The amount of time that's covered and the number of characters um, that that appear and play like you can you could imagine you know this being a mini series or a TV show where there's like a whole side sure. plot involving um, you know Carlo and Connie and like the disintegration of their marriage or another whole side <laughs> plot that is like Luca Brasi and his role in the family right you can imagine all that and yet all that yeah. has to be implied in an incredibly economical way. Yeah, I totally agree with you guys. So you're right, Luke. I think that part of it is like how how dense and how like how much scrutiny they had to look at each thing they put in but as fonda said it's so tight like that's the that's the major thing is like i've seen plenty of movies that are close to three hours that felt like they were close to three hours and this is just like it's just it goes by in a breeze and honestly i wish it was longer sometimes i i don't actually but like i feel <laughs> like when i'm watching it i'm like i'll i'll watch as much of this as there is yeah i don't think that there's one thing that you can point to and say like this is why this this film was so influential but uh, I do want to bring up a couple of things as far as production is, is concerned. Okay. Um, the lighting of this film has gone on to become legendary because the, the lighting of the time was very, um, very much flat. Not, not flat, but very like over, overexposed. There was a lot of light to go around. And the cinematographer, Gordon Willis, came to be known as the Prince of Darkness. He earned a nickname, the Prince of Darkness, after this film came out. <laughs> That's a cool nickname. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I would, I would love to have that in here. <laughs> so uh, it was the decision to, to light harshly, and it kind of goes back to some of the things that we've talked about before. With we've talked about like film noir, it's harsh lighting. Usually, there's the the fill light is missing, so it's harsh either coming over the top of your head, so your eyes are kind of sunk in and like you can't see their eyes very well, or it's like half of their face. One half will be well lit. One half will be in darkness. I keep thinking of of the Godfather in his like, you know, living room or wherever he his mm -hmm. office where he meets everybody is is I've, I've seen it so dark. I was yeah. kind of amazed at how dark the room was. And it creates such 
a feeling of starkness mm-hmm. to the quality um, of the film right from the opening shot, right? Which is just black. And then you hear Bonacera's voice saying, I believe in America. And it just, you know, it, it his face comes into focus, but it's like emerging out of darkness. And it's so stark. Um, and the mm. whole film is like that. There's a... Um, it was kind of like one of those fan theories out there that um, in The Godfather, fruit and oranges in particular. I love this theory. Are symbolic of something, yeah. right? Because there's, uh, there's so many there's scenes where oranges make an appearance. Obviously, the assassination scene or the attempted assassination of Vito. He's buying fruit and the oranges spill out on the street as he's shot. And, you know, at the... He puts one... Uh, he puts one, he puts an orange yeah. in his mouth. So there's all these theories of, like, oranges or fruit being, like, a harbinger of death. But um, <laughs> in reality, from what I've read, the reason there were there were oranges was to lighten up the shots because it was oh. so dark. And that, like, fl- little splash of color um, was a great mm-hmm. way to bring some balance into into the scene. But now, of course, it's it's turned into this, like, meta thing oh, where people are like, yeah. I'm searching for oranges in every yeah. scene. I'm sure as a writer, you can appreciate that how that kind of stuff can happen, right? Yes, <laughs> like, absolutely. Where you're like, well, I just did this because, you know, it was cool. And then yeah. people start reading into it. And it's like, oh, it's a <laughs> metaphor for, you know, life or whatever. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and you go, yeah, of course it was. Yes. Good job. <laughs> I'm such a genius. That is exactly what I intended. Uh, I wanted to talk about the that theory a little bit as well, because I love that. Uh, and I think it's been disproven at this point because it, like you said, it really was just for that pop of color because there was a lot of like, you know, like whites and blacks and grays and things like that. So that's pops of color. And I think they do help in some of the scenes. Like um, there's a scene where, where Hagen, Tom Hagen goes to talk to the the executive the and uh, there's like oranges in the middle of the yeah. table as he's like yelling at him and stuff. It's just so funny that it happened to happen. It Are you talking when he goes to talk to, to Harvey Weinstein, yeah. a.k.a. Waltz? Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I had I've been that's been in my notes since the since the book and I just not had to say it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the lighting. Uh, I, something that something that I wanted to track and we'll look at it for the next movie as well is um, you can kind of tell uh, and this is lighting in general. This is kind of lighting one on one is you can kind of track what a character's emotions are based on the lighting on their face. So if it's like half their face is exposed, half their face is not, it's like some sort of duality, like some like there there's like a good and evil thing going on or it's like they're conflicted or something like that and if you can't see their eyes if their like eyes are shadowed like that it's so that you can't tell what they're thinking because if you can't see their eyes you can't you can't really trust them or you can't really know what's going on in their mind Mm -hmm. um so those those aesthetic choices were were chosen to do that and another one to bring up is that willis wanted uh each shot to be a pov shot so basically like it's it can't just be this like omniscient presence camera flying all over the place. Everything's like from some a point of view to keep it more grounded. It, his his lighting was so precise that if if an actor missed their mark, they would be in complete darkness. Like they wouldn't be lit how they needed to be lit. So everybody had to hit their marks exactly. So it's interesting because it wasn't I mean, the camera wasn't necessarily in a character's point of view for every scene, but it felt like a it felt like view. a point of view in the like in the room. That, that's interesting, yeah. But there are. It's funny because there is like a disagreement between there was a disagreement between Willis and Coppola a couple of times. There are there are things that aren't technically a POV shot, like the 
the bird's eye view that we get of the veto attempted assassination. That was the one that came to mm. mind for me. Yeah, right. that that, so. that really felt like a um, omniscient um, POV because you were seeing it from above as it happened. Mm -hmm. And I guess they had an argument on set, and and Coppola said about that because he said like the uh, Willis was like this isn't a POV shot. And Coppola was like, well, God's POV, you know, Orson Welles POV. He's like basically <laughs> saying like it's somebody's POV. It's just not it's not necessarily a human being's POV. So ultimately, Coppola won out with that. And he's the director. So that, that that's what ended up. And I actually think that shot works really well for that. Interesting. Scene. One more thing I wanted to mention is the fact that they decided to. Uh, not use any technology that wasn't attainable in the 40s. So like there there aren't any zoom lenses used and there aren't any cranes used. A lot of it was either like, um, or there either are none or there are very few. Hmm. They like made a decision to make sure that that was um, in keeping with, and it's actually funny, Luke and I recorded a bonus episode yesterday where we talked about how this is kind of unrelated, but the thing 2011 uh, used more modern filmmaking techniques than the original thing. And it's supposed to be a prequel and they feel very different because of that. Mm -hmm. yep. um, so it's cool to know that like they were using techniques that would have been used in the forties in order to keep that continuity there for the film. Yeah. Uh, so I watched it with my wife and it was also her first, first time seeing it. And uh, that was something I kept, I kept noticing was like this, this was a period movie when it was made and and so because of that, it feels like an older movie than it even is in in some ways. That's part of the reason why the studio the studio wanted to modernize it is because it costs so much money to make a make a period piece. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's a I think that's a good time to to move into characters and and cast. Um, I just want to hear your guys' reactions to Marlon Brando off the, right off the bat. Okay, uh, I'll start. Marlon Brando was astounding in this movie. Um, I think that's probably been said a million times, um, but but I was just. Like I was every time he was on screen, I was just riveted, and I really wanted more of him than we got. Honestly, like I wanted more scenes with the Godfather in it, um, because he's kind of absent for a large part of the movie. Um, and but then when he returns, like he's 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 transformed. Like there's a transformation for that character and for Michael. Um, that is that is I mean super important to the movie, obviously in their character arcs, but also just the way the actors performed the their roles incredible and uh yeah i mean i also so we looked it up because my wife and i were, were wondering if he had something going on in his mouth and right. uh it's it, she she looked it up actually and told me that he was wearing some sort of dentures that had like a like a thing that widened his cheeks um and and it's really interesting because he he looked kind of transformed in this role and then and then uh he could go from being so warm and interesting, you know, I don't know. He just had like a grandfatherly feel too at times, especially later on in the movie. Um, I just really liked him. But I also feared him, right? Yeah, I, I really liked the nuance he was able to bring to mm -hmm. this role is astonishing because he is able to portray a man who is powerful and frightening and able to command a great deal of respect and... Um, exert violence and yet is completely convincing when he's playing with his grandson in the garden and, you know, hugging his grandkids and wandering around the wedding. And, you know, I, um, I found, uh, I, I'd read somewhere that Brando improvised a lot of some of the, um, really kind of iconic things we now associate with, with Vito Corleone. For example, you know, the, his, his particular raspy voice, the fact that in the very first shot, 
as he's talking with the petitioners, he has this cat that he's playing with. I'm glad we got to mention the cat. (laughs) Right? And apparently that was not in the script at all. There was like this cat that was on set that wandered on set and Brando picks up the cat and starts playing with it in his lap and that made it all the way through to the final cut. While he's doing his line. Right. And now like everyone can picture, you know, the Godfather in that sort of stark black and white um shot in his study with the cat on his lap right like that and so some of those things that are so now seem so integral to the character are entirely a function of brando and uh, i i just like him like i always um i i think that it's really interesting and we'll get to this more i think even more so in part two the contrast between um vito corleone as godfather and michael corleone as godfather Michael has, and this is, uh, you know, all due to Pacino as well. Pacino has such a, like, um, cold, frightening quality Mm -hmm. to his performance as Michael that really juxtaposes Brando's performance of Vito as being very, very familial, very warm and friendly Mm -hmm. if you like grandfatherly like luke said so um although they are both cunning and ruthless leaders in their own right their style of leadership comes across as very different and that is that is completely um credited to the performances of brando and pacino I do also like the Brando portrayal because w- when we talked about it in the in the book episode, we said that he was uh, it was all favors, right? That's mm-hmm. exactly what was kind of coming off the page is that like it's all favors, it's all about although maybe it's not necessarily um, the truth. It, it's all business. Everything that happens has to happen for a reason, um, and it's it, you really feel that from from Brando's veto. And then, like you said, when we get to Al Pacino's Michael Corleone he's lacking that and i think that's something really important to to think about um moving forward and i also wanted to mention something else about lighting that i didn't before is that in in al pacino's performance he starts out very well lit and then becomes much more dark and covered in shadows as time goes on uh and also the, the you were talking about how cold he can be i also want to talk about how warm he seems in the not necessarily warm in the beginning but just much he didn't seem like he was going to have that cold side to him and i just think both performances are just amazing that and that's what i that you for talking about al pacino's performance in this film for me that was the most striking part of it is early on in the movie i was like i can't believe this is al pacino there was none of the like al pacino's of him that i was so used to in all these other films he's been in he was not intense he was very kind of laid back and and he he did this really good performance of of a, just kind of like a young almost naive version Right. And then we see him and there was a part where he uh, he looks he, he's outside the hospital and he's he's sort of faking uh, with, with uh, the I think he's the baker and the baker goes to light a cigarette and his hand is just shaking dramatically. And I then um, Michael's able to light his cigarette and his hand isn't shaking and he kind of looks down at it like realizing it. And I thought, OK, this is him realizing that he's actually good at this and maybe has the like nerve for it. Um, and then that transformation, especially when he comes back from Sicily, when he returns from Sicily, he's a different mm-hmm. man. And he becomes the Al Pacino that goes on to define his career. And when he's across uh, from uh, the character in, in Vegas, he, he's giving him this like, Mo I don't know, 
he's yeah Mo Green. He's the way he's looking at that man uh, is so striking. Like it, it, he's just looking right through him. He's got this stare. Um, and like you said, I mean, I guess it sounds like maybe some lighting was was being played with to make him look so intimidating. But um, I think a big part of it is the fact that Pacino can just turn on that intimidation uh, and, and do it so well. Because I mean, he went on to do that for the rest of his career, right? Right. Yeah. He almost it be, he became that became him, right? He, but yeah. it's you know it's it's fascinating because um, you really realize that this is a story of succession when you look at. Uh, the way Brando's character and Pacino's character, the cor- the two Corleone um, kingpins, and the transformation that they go through so simultaneously and smoothly. So, you know, you, re- you really get the sense of Vito becoming mortal after he's injured and, you know, he, he comes back and there's this scene where you know, he's, he started to retire and he's handing the reins over to Michael and they're in the study and, you know, he's, he's a different person now. He's kind of in a sweater and he's looking at the mm-hmm. fish and, and Michael's the one who's, who's really kind of uh, driving the conversation. And then you sort of have this final moment between him and Michael where they're sitting in the garden and um, Vito is kind of, mentioning things you know he's you know saying the you know whoever comes to you after you know words is to make the peace is going to be the traitor and you should call get those guys to track the calls and michael's like yeah yeah dad i (laughs) I got it i know like you know like that's sort of very familiar parent child interaction as the parent ages and the child's like yeah yeah i know dad you've you said that already so that transformation is occurring at the same time as you know, Michael is, there's a scene with Michael that sticks in my mind where he, and it's packed in there so efficiently because you see him in Sicily, right? And he's got, he's married to Apollonia and, you know, it's sort of this bucolic landscape. And then there's the bombing. He comes back, he sees Kay. And there's this moment when like the camera just rests on his face when he come when Kay sees him. And you see him and it's like there's something in his eyes that's completely changed. <laughs> mm-hmm. And like, you know, he's he, he is now the dawn. Like it, it's it, <laughs> there's obvious like from him in Sicily kind of, you know, gangling about in the countryside to like, boom, he's Michael Corleone yeah. that we're now going to have through the rest of you know, the Godfather and the Godfather part two. I did want to talk a little bit more about that scene just because it came up uh, where, where they're in the garden talking and. Um, it was, uh, to me, that scene was tragic and, and, um, in a way, uh, because I felt, it felt like I was so sad to see the Godfather that was so in control, sort of having a moment where he's forgotten that he's already talked about this thing. And, and it's like the sadness is in the aging process and the fact that you can't, nothing is forever and you're, you're going to eventually have to move on from, from things that you maybe were so good at. And, and in that sense, it was tragic to me. The way that him forgetting also serving as a reminder to the audience, these key things that are going to come to play, yeah. to come loop everything back together. I think that's great from a filmmaking standpoint. And then, yeah, just the, the way that he says, like, there, there wasn't enough time. Like, I couldn't get our generation elevated to, like, I, your gener- I wanted you to be the one to carry it up a level. Mm-hmm. And, like, there wasn't enough time for him to get him there. So now Michael has to take that on. And he says, we'll get there. We'll get there. As in, 
I'll get us there. Next generation will be legitimized and senators and governors, whatever he wanted. So yeah, I mean, it's tragic and, and I think it's so effective. In another way though, it's um, it it's heroic in that it departs so much from the morality tale that a lot of other gangster films um, ha- end up being because mm. up until The Godfather, gangster films were you know, they were kind of like just cops and robbers stories in the sense that, you know, they were kind of overplayed villains and the the moral of the tale was usually like crime doesn't pay, right? You'd have these gangsters <laughs> yeah. and, you know, they'd be doing, they would, yeah, sure, they would be kind of glamorous, but in the end they would get gunned down and they would die and be arrested and so on. And so to see uh, a film in which the family, the Corleones are just portrayed like, a yes a powerful and dangerous family but normal people if you will right and and um Vito he 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 gets old and he plays with his grandson and he dies of a heart attack in the garden and there's no like kind of morality tale in there of you know oh he he was a criminal kingpin so he has to Gun down, he has to go to jail. And I think that was a big departure at the time that elevated The Godfather away from being a gangster flick and being something much um, more than that, which was really a family chronicle. Yeah, he so that scene, he he really goes out in like kind of the ideal way. A lot of people, if you ask somebody, like, how would you like to go? Other than the fact that it might kind of scar your grandson, <laughs> um, he's playing with his grandkids, he's you know, he's having this like moment of pure joy, I think. Um, or he's genuinely enjoying it. And then um, the other thing is what you're talking about with being gunned down. Uh, it stood out to me that his the the grandson's little toy or whatever it is, like a, it's like a to water the plants, looks like a gun. And it's sort of he's sort of chasing the Godfather through the through the plants, almost trying to shoot at him. And I thought it was really interesting that when he when he does finally collapse, the the grandson runs over and kind of sprays him. And it's, I don't know what that, I don't know. I'd like to unpack that metaphor a little bit. Like, what does that mean? Because is the, is that a representation of the kind of the cops element, the, the it catching up to him? Or is it, is it softened because it is just water? I don't know. Well, is it also like, is it youth catching up to age? Mm. The, the son, the son usurps the, the father or the grandson usurps the grandfather. I don't know. That's all I got for you. <laughs> okay, I just noticed it and wrote it down because I, I was I thought it was cool. It was because it was very it was very gun like the the thing the kid was holding. So I thought yeah, it I has didn't to even think about that. Has to mean something. So let's talk about these other these other actors very quickly. Uh, James Caan as Sonny. Uh, mm. I think that he plays aggressive and and over the top like Sonny should have. And something else that I that I noticed is the way that he's lit is his emotions are always on his sleeve, so he's always well lit for the most part. Yeah. Uh, Fonda, what, what did you think of that character and that, that portrayal? I found him a really sympathetic character. I especially loved his relationship with Tom. I think it comes across a lot mm. more strongly in the film than it does in the book. And the the brotherly love, but also the conflict that exists between them. And the fact that there are times when they just go added they argue quite vehemently against each other. Um, Tom is, you know, arguing for um for for making the deal for being rational for avoiding a war and there's this that great exchange where Sonny is just like you know that's it Tom like no more talking of like making deals just help me win just help me win Tom 
and the grief that is on Tom's face when Sonny is killed. So that, there's a lot more, I think, great interaction that, uh, that uh, James Caan and Robert Duvall get into the film, um, more so even though than I think was on the page with Puzo's novel. Yeah, I, I mostly I mostly loved his portrayal. I think there was a couple times where book version of Sonny to me was a more intimidating force than I quite got out of movie Sonny. Like I, I, I really wanted him to be almost more frightening at times with his anger. Um, and it, it just I, I think that's the one thing that for me with that character didn't quite get all the way there to the to the character I had built up in my mind from reading the book. Um, and so, but I mean, but like you said, a lot of the other stuff he really nailed, like the, a lot of the family stuff, a lot of those scenes, um, came across, but it was, yeah, it was like the, the beating of, um, Carlo Rizzi, for example. Um, while a cool scene, uh, I just, I don't know. There was also a, uh, and my wife pointed this out and we definitely caught it. There's a huge whiff I of saw, a punch yeah. I saw where, yes, where I he, saw that too. he misses him by a foot. Yeah. And, then, and so like, there's that. And then there's also just like his presence isn't quite as frightening as I've seen like other actors do in other films. Right. Where like that kind of scene could have been really scary. And instead it wasn't quite there uh, for me. I, I don't know. It's interesting because it's like, I'm nitpicking this amazing piece of cinema, but um, yeah, I don't know. I, I mostly liked him, but he, he wasn't someone who I'm going to like go, you know, like Al Pacino's portrayal and Marlon Brando's portrayal to me are the, the real standouts. Uh, whereas that one was just pretty good. Yeah, I wanted to agree with Fonda about the James Caan, Robert Duvall, Sonny Tom relationship, though, mm. um, because I feel like that is really, really powerful. And it is it's like it's not like, a you know, it's not very prominent within the story of the film, but it's like the brotherly aspect is very I feel like is really there, especially like you were saying with the uh, just help me win thing. It's like that's something you say like that. The frustration that was there is very brotherly. And yeah. I think Robert Duvall also killed it as as Tom Hagen. Like he just like all the way through as a conciliary was yep. just I, I, he was awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And so cold when 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 Michael cuts him out, um, I couldn't believe like we were we were stunned by how cold it was because it was it was it was clear that he's essentially a brother to these men. And and he's and, and Michael's his last brother remaining at this point. And he just, you're out, you're out, Tom. And then just won't even hear anything to, you know, otherwise. Um, I don't know. It really, I mean, I know that happens in the book, but it really, it really stood out as a colder moment to me in the film. And, and the way that the Godfather just says like, yeah, we talked about it and we agreed that you're, you're out. Um, it was like, um, I was, I was kind of surprised to see that Tom remained so loyal after that. Because it felt it felt like that could be a turning point for for Tom as a character too. Well, it's, yeah, it's that loyalty. It, it, I'm, it, yeah. yeah, I like that though because it's like he still stucks it out even though he's been kind of slighted. Yeah, no, yeah, it makes sense because he's he, that's who he is. But like, I, I think a different character might have turned in that moment for sure. Right, and I I think uh, you know it's it's not entirely a indictment of Tom that makes Michael make that decision. Right, Michael has set up this huge reckoning that he's going to mm -hmm. orchestrate. And um, my sense was in, in some respects, he wanted to protect Tom from that. But yeah, there's, there's a humanity to Sonny that you don't get um, with Michael. The, you know, that love for his sister, you know, the way he, he, he interacts with Tom. Michael is a very um, frightening character but not a particularly likable one in in that you know you never see him really interact in a 
in a warm or familial way with any of his brothers. He, um, he doesn't really seem to share that much of, an, of a connection with Sonny. Um, he, he doesn't react to Sonny's death the way Tom reacts to, to Sonny's death. Um, you know, his, his relationship with, uh, with Connie and his relationship with his wife, there's just, there's so many moments where you're like, you're just, a, are you human? You're more of a machine yeah. than you are a man. And I think, uh, James Conn and his portrayal of Sonny, while not, um, as convincing as a, a mafia boss lightens that and it brings more balance mm. to the family. No, and I agree with that because there is something sort of identifiable and human about someone who will fly off the handle and be enraged at things, right? And takes things personally. And there is something, yeah, very, very human about that. Um, but you're right because Michael in the film, at least, is so cold, especially when he comes back from Sicily um, and scary and has none of that um, warmth that we see out of the, out of the Godfather um, when he's dealing with his friends and, you know, compatriots and, 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 that feels ominous to me going into part two. I, I mean, I haven't seen it yet, but it feels like that maybe isn't sustainable because that human element, that friendly element of the Godfather is maybe something that uh, you can't undersell as far as like it's really holding this all together. Um, yeah, so I'm very interested to see how that plays out. So we've kind of jumped around with plot, but I also yep. wanted to ask you guys right here because we're talking about Sonny and kind of everything that goes on with him. So the Sonny death, um, when he pulls up to the toll plaza, have either of you seen uh, Bonnie and Clyde? No. I have, but it was a, a long time ago. The scene uh, in Bonnie and Clyde, I guess it's kind of a spoiler, but it's a very old movie. Uh, Bonnie and Clyde die. <laughs> Spoilers. Um, <laughs> I knew that. Yeah, Bonnie, the scene where they're gunned down is it felt like it was almost a reference that, that Coppola was making to the Bonnie and Clyde scene with the, the way that he's shot just kind of felt like it. I can see that. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, he gets shot a lot. <laughs> he does. Um, but I think it's, it's interesting because to me, it, to me, that really spoke to because I think I've seen that parodied. I think I'm like Family Guy or something um, that that scene because he gets shot so much. It's almost comical. But for um, for this movie, it felt like. Uh, he gets shot an amount commensurate to like uh, commensurate to how important he is, right? Like in his role, like he and and the fact that his father didn't die from getting shot five times, so it was like they came out and they were like, no, we're gonna shoot him like a hundred times to yeah. make sure. And I think it's also a message, right? It's a message to yeah. the rest of the family. Yeah, yeah, it's really, that really brutal. that scene just guts me, and in particular, um, the the scenes following it, the the conversation that Vito has with Tom in the study after Sonny's death and the scene where Vito takes Sonny's body to Bonacera, the undertaker and the emotion that Brando just has on his face in that scene is, is really gutting. And here's another thing that, um, that works much better in my opinion in film than it did in the novel was the shock value, the, the way that that played out. If you recall last week when we were talking about the novel, we were saying that Puzo has this habit of showing you what happened after it happened and then backtracking to do the flashback of, um, of how it happened. So in the book, you know, Sonny's dead only when, um, when, when the body is show, shows up at, uh, at the undertakers that would not have worked at well at all in film. And, the fact that it is, um, it's, 
it's much more immediate and much more shocking um, works works with Sonny's for Sonny's death um, and for Vito's um, near death in the film, and I think they have more emotional impact as a result than than they do in the book. Yeah. So some of these scenes that I wanted to touch on: one, the scene where Michael goes to the hospital to see his father. Oh yeah. And just like there's a lot of tension that's built up in this scene with like empty hallways and waiting for, for somebody to come in. And then eventually the baker comes in. Yeah, definitely. I think that's the scene where, like Luke said, Michael realizes that he was, he, he has to take charge. And from there on in, he realizes he's actually, this is his calling. This is his destiny, if you will. It's in particular important because there's that desperation, that fear that's built up in the way that it's shot because um, Vito Corleone is like this larger than life character. And here he is lying helpless in this hospital bed, unable to defend himself and all the guards are gone and you know someone's going to come try to kill him. So you can... Just um, you can see Michael in that moment realizing that, and when he bends over Vito and is like, "It's okay, Pop. I'm I'm gonna take care of you. I'm here." You can yeah. just you can sort of see the 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 gears turning in him being like, "That's it. Like you came at my dad. Like you're gonna like, <laughs> yeah, he's you on know. his way. Yeah. So uh, so there's I think it, that might be one of the most human moments for Michael in the film. Especially that moment where he's he actually tears up when he's interacting with his with his father and he up to this point I think that character feels like Sonny has this in hand in a way and he just he can just sit back and kind of let them take care of their family business. But in that moment it's like, "Oh no, this is this is not in hand and I have to step up in this moment. There's nobody else. It's just me." I have to do this. Um, and so that's cool because I think that shows him like there's a place for him and he's needed um, in this family. And it's immediately after this scene that we get the one where he's been uh, punched in the face by McCloskey and they're sitting around in the study and, you know, Michael's jaw is wired and he just, he's sitting in that chair and he cold, he coldly lays out the plan. Like he's going to kill them both. Yeah. And that's the yeah. first time we see we see Michael Corleone kind of like emerge, right? That's like the that the it, Godfather yeah. sitting in the chair, laying out like the the plan. Um, so yeah. that's the, that I think is like the character turning moment. The moment where he when he's uh, kind of in a panic, not in a panic, but he's like very intense, and he tells the nurse that he she's don't go anywhere. You're going to help me move my dad, and like all the plan that he has with the popping the collars up and and putting your hand in your pocket like he has a gun, and then yeah, leading into that that speech that he gives, kind of setting up the plan and showing that he's got the the mind to back up all of the plans that are probably going to be coming, which leads us to the actual execution of that plan. This scene is absolutely incredible. The thing that sticks in my mind with that scene is Michael coming out of the restroom. And um, if I recall, you know, Clemenza and Sonny had told him just go out, come out guns blazing. And he doesn't. He walks up to the table, he sits down, and there's this great... Uh, juxtaposition of his face, which seems very composed and uh, passive on the outside. And then the sound of the train 
screeching mm. in the background. So it's like all the other noise fades out and you can just hear the train screeching. It's kind of like that rising, you know, scream on the soundtrack right before Michael acts. So there's that, that great um, interplay between what's on his face and like this, the sound of the train screeching in his mind. That's the exact part of the scene that that's uh, we actually studied in class as well. There's a couple of things that happen here, right? So he emerges from the bathroom, and like you said, he was supposed to fire immediately. There's a decision that he's making to not. And then what is the decision? Is it that he's scared? Is it that he doesn't want to necessarily kill him? Does he think that he can still work these guys over in some way? Um, and then as he as he comes and sits down, we kind of see his th- thought process. Like we we're, we start with like an over the shoulder shot where you can see some of Salazzo's arm, and then slowly the camera's pushing in to just a close up on Mark Michael's face, and it's like this realization moment, like you said with the screeching, um, where it's like it's all coming together, and he, the way that he's like looking at them, and it's it just like all of these things build together to to be to sh- to show a decision being made in a character's mind. And to me, that rising sound represents um, his his sort of will to murder, to commit murder here. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 the way it kind of like rises up and, and just it drops out the words that are being said, it's like he's, I don't know if that represents his anger or his, or what, you know what I mean? But it's all kind of rising up, rising up, rising up, and it hits a crescendo, and that's the moment where he shoots them both. I did notice that uh, that same technique is, or similar technique is used a couple other times in the film where there's this like crescendo of noise um, that 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 always marks like some very important scene. Yeah, I think that's just a, a strong uh, filmmaking technique as well. I think most yeah. a lot of movies do that. Um, interesting noises are like, like kind of like we've talked about diegetic and non-diegetic. These are like diegetic sounds yeah. that are kind of also saying what's happening because it's like it might be a, it might be a score. In another movie, in another movie, but it might have been like a dun dun dun, like some sort of yeah, like, you're right, like musical note here, like number that shows that. But instead, they're using like diegetic in-world sounds to like show the turmoil and the decisions and everything, like you say. There's a really interesting inverse of that that happens, and we're not going to go to this film, but at the very end of the trilogy, the famous mm-hmm. silent scream that Michael has at the end of Godfather Part Three, where it reverses essentially the the effect of kind of the creation of Michael Corleone when he when he takes that step um, at the beginning of his career by killing Salazzo and McCluskey you see it come full circle at the end where the sound is again kind of like pushed out and all you just you just have silence even though you know that he's you know he's screaming you can see the anguish on his face it's just silence James, that sounds like it's a really good candidate for a bonus episode to me because we got we got to watch that and talk about it now at some yeah. point. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it's definitely one that we can d- consider doing. So so real quick, uh, I I realized the the particular point in the movie I'm talking about with the sh- with the sound, and I think it maybe it's for a different effect. So you can you can weigh in on it. Um, it's when uh, Carlo Rizzi has been beating um, uh, what's her name Connie Connie. And uh, there's a phone call. And so we, we go from the scene where, like, all this screaming and crashing is very, very loud. And it kind of gets louder, louder, louder. And then immediately cuts to, I think it's the mother picking up the phone. And there's a baby screaming in the, in her ear right when she picks it up. And so it was interesting because it's like, instead of a crescendo to silence, it's crescendo to this incredibly loud sound. 
Um, I don't know. Like I was, I guess I was curious. Like what, 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 what was that conveying? I, I think it focuses the reaction on Sunny because the mom can't hear what's going on. The baby is screaming in the background, so you can't hear what Connie is saying. You don't know if she's crying on the other end. You don't know what she's saying. All you get is Sonny's face and his reaction to whatever he's hearing from his sister on the other end. Is the is the outpouring of emotion from the infant sort of like a mirror of maybe the outpouring of emotion that's going on in Sonny as he's getting this news? Because this is him not this is him losing his cool and doing something that isn't smart. And 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 that's also what we just saw in that scene was a very emotional scene. So I, I don't know. I'm just free associating at this point. But I'm wondering if that if that could be something, right? Yeah, I mean, I can see that for sure. It's definitely I think it has something to do with the extreme nature of the situation of like where Sonny's about to go with just like the loudest noise that you can hear in a movie. Is like yeah. I mean, screaming. a baby screaming full throated into the to, to, to the sound of the movie is that's like kind of a. Like, I, that's a sound people don't want to hear. So it's interesting that they, they put it right there. Maybe that's another thing. It's very uncomfortable. Yeah, I also just love the fact that there are all these <laughs> scenes of, like, kids running around and screaming and things going on in the kitchen. There's that, it's, there's just this realism to it. Like, yeah, that is, oh, yeah. is exactly what would happen when you have the baby in the house. Like, some phone call yeah. comes in and it's important. You can't hear <laughs> a damn thing because the baby's crying. Like, it's, there's just that element of, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that's familiar. And there's a there, that reminds me of the line, uh, "Don't hit the kids" or "Don't watch out for the kids" when when they're backing out at one point right. to go murder a man. Right. Um. But but uh, yeah, you're right. Like there's always kids around, and you gotta you gotta take that in consideration. It's kind of that human human thing. Right. And when Vito yeah. gets home from the hospital, right, this room's crowded, and all the kids oh, yeah. have got like little pictures that they drawn for him, and there's all these kids packed in the room, and they get all shoot out so that the door yeah. can be closed and. They can talk business now. <laughs> okay, I want to jump over some stuff. I'll just touch on it really quickly, and we can come back around to it. But uh, they go to they go to Vegas, and they kind of try to strong arm uh, Mo Green with all of the hotel mm-hmm. stuff. And uh, around that time, Vito suffers the heart attack, and then the the funeral of Vito happens. And this is where Michael's fully. I mean, he's had to fully take on the role. Mm-hmm. And the way that he's like, just like trying to figure out who's going to betray him by who's going to ask him to meet with Barzini and the look that Al Pacino has on Michael's face and he's just staring at everyone. And then, yeah, Tessio comes up and asks him to meet with Barzini. So he knows that that's the betrayer, even though that was a more unlikely one of the two capos. And uh, this leads to the scene where Michael solidifies himself in uh, his power, at least, I do like that it's that it's the smart one. They say it's like, oh, he no, he was the smart one, so it makes sense that it was him because it's the smarter move. <laughs> well, it's like if he uh, if he had even known, gets him killed. <laughs> yeah, if he had known what Michael knew and what he was planning, I think that he wouldn't have no, chosen no. that. But he felt like all was lost. Like he felt like yeah. they were going to lose, so he was making the smart move of switching sides instead of the loyal move, right? Right. So there's a, maybe that's an interesting thing about loyalty. So yeah, let's just jump into the christening scene. I love how much the films rely on family events to mark turning points. And, you know, it begins with a wedding and it ends with a christening. So there's so much wrapped up in, uh, you know, the, the fact that these big family events are are these tent poles in the narrative. And the way that it juxtaposes Michael being at, um, you know, his 
godsons, um, baptism, while all this violence is playing out, is really effectively done. And it it gives the, like, there's almost this surreal quality to it um, yeah. that that's very affecting, especially because you know that he's going to, um, you know there's going to be a reckoning with Carlo. And the fact that Michael can do something as cold as to, I mean, they, he's brought Mike, he's brought Carlo in more. I mean, Carlo is in that room when they're talking about going to Vegas and he thinks he's been brought into the family more and Michael respects him now. And, you know, Michael makes the decision to become um, godfather to their child, ostensibly to allay any suspicion that he's got it in for Carlo. Um, so that, that ability to, uh, to, to be so calm and cold um, while planning something so ruthless is really brought to the forefront by intercutting those scenes of, you know, taking out all the other um, dons while uh, attending to this, like, baptism of this baby. Yeah, I mean, to, to piggyback off of that, uh, I, I immediately thought of how literally standing at, you know, the altar in a church in a religious ceremony in front of a priest who's asking you, do you renounce Satan? You know, all this stuff. And, and and we see Michael in this moment is lying to the priest. And like by extension, he's almost lying to God. And it's showing like the how far he's willing to go. And how, to me, it felt like uh, he was, he had kind of sold his soul at this moment mm -hmm. and was, was almost irredeemable because he's lying to God. He's lying to everyone there. He's, um, we see the the effects of what he's actually doing in this moment, and the people who are being killed. Um, yeah, it just. Uh, it, it, I mean, I couldn't help but think of uh, what is it, The Devil's Advocate? He later plays where he is Satan. <laughs> it's like, do you renounce Satan? He's like, yes. And I'm like, no, you don't, because you later played him. <laughs> 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 um, but but regardless, in in world, this this was really striking to me because I, I yeah I kept to me it felt like it brought in the universe and it brought in religion. And how he was so able to to keep this facade of being a good person and being um, a godly man or whatever you want to say, and how he really wasn't anymore and had really had really had this coldness and darkness in him. I think in this moment he proves himself to be more savage than his father. I'm not sure that Vito would have ended the war the same way that Michael did. I mean, he's. You know, Sonny is the one who's kind of um, portrayed as being the hothead and the warmonger. But um, Michael combines Sonny's penchant for violence with Vito's cunning and his mm -hmm. scheming intelligence. And so he's, you know, he's he's different um, from, you know, both both of both his father and from his older brother, but has kind of taken like the most um, dangerous aspects of both of them and put them together. That's really cool from a storytelling point of view, too, because I think it would have been a, it would have been an easy route to go of saying that Michael is sort of now the new godfather in every way and, and, and was more similar to Vito. I really like that he is his own man with his own style and his own problems and his own things that he's really good at and bad at and it, he does feel like a very distinct character which is which is just awesome like i love that it really is this reluctant son coming into the business and and fully fully selling his soul like you were talking about i think it is he's being asked if he renounces satan and it's like he's basically like a 
a hand of Satan at this point. Like he's just yeah. murdering people and anyone who gets in his way. And this payoff, like this is one, one of the greatest payoffs in cinematic history because of the slow burn nature of this film mm-hmm. to, to have him just like so completely destroy his enemies. I mean, it's like you said before, Fawn, it's savage, but it's also like you're on his side for all of this. It's so satisfying. It's, it's so, so satisfying. narratively satisfying right? because mm-hmm. you, he, he so efficiently cements his family's power. That just that line today, I all I settle all family business. Oh, I love it. Yeah, I love that it's, line. Yeah, and so you know, it's um, the way he manipulates uh, Carlo mm-hmm. is so so brutal and so great. Yeah, and the you know, I think the um, way he he lies with his actions when he's at the baptism is. Um, is kind of further reinforced in that scene afterward where um, Connie runs screaming into the room and she's so distraught because she knows Michael's had Carlo killed. And Kay asks, you know, is, is it true? And at first Michael refuses to answer. And then he's like, okay, this one time I'll Mm -hmm. let you ask. So she asks him and he just flat out lies to her face and um, reassures her and out she goes. And then she looks back and she sees, you know, him, sees him being paid uh, respect as the new dawn and the door closes. And that's it. Like it's, yeah. She immediately realizes it was a lie, I think in that moment, right? Definitely. I mean, it's the other thing that I wanted to talk about with, with the actual baptism is the way that it's intercut. And this is this is the intercut sequence of the century. Like this is the one that you have to look at if you're looking to intercut. Like you think of the the two scenes individually of what's going on, and then you think of the every time he renounces Satan and and all of his works or whatever. Uh, it's it's each cut is so strong, and it's like at the perfect moment, and they're just killing another person and taking down yeah. another enemy. So I also want to mention how this is another difference between him and Sonny. I think, and 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 he is so removed from it all. And even Carlo, who I could have totally seen a, a moment where Michael kills him himself, um, which Michael, we see Michael get his hands dirty early. But like at this point, he's he's transitioned to a figure that isn't going to directly do the violence. He is totally fine letting his, you know, uh, I don't know, minions almost do his bidding for him and, and kill these people. And still he's going to get that sort of... Uh, I don't know that 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 it's a necessary thing that he's willing to do, and it seems like he does get some sort of satisfaction out of it because of the vengeance element. But he's also so cold and so removed from it all. He's so cold, and it was so calculated all the way through. Like you, the influence of Vito is seen here. Like Vito helped him orchestrate this plan in some way, because yeah. like in in lulling everybody into a false sense of security with the the meeting of the five families, uh, he set up. Michael to basically on the day that people least expected it on the on the christening of his of his goddaughter he effectively took all of them out and uh, all the planning and and figuring out exactly who it was and we talked about in the book episode just the waiting and how long they were willing to wait for Carlo and how long he waited to execute this plan Uh, you're right because because Vito's vengeance comes after he dies 
talk about mm-hmm. removed, right? And you're right. It does seem like he's been sort of orchestrating this all along and setting this up. And he's been an integral part of this plan. And he, the way he says, I promise you, I won't exact vengeance. Like, I thought he, he really hit that eye to, to show that uh, there's room for, like, the fact that he's not lying when he says that because it's it's Michael who ends up doing the, the retaliation, not him. I love that speech. The speech that yeah. Vito gives in the in the room with the five families is um, is really well portrayed. It, it see it comes across as very uh, genuine. It's like the last great act of of the dawn, and it's after that that you see you know Michael really kind of take the helm. Um, but wait, it's it really is kind of um, Vito making like the the last major mark that he makes as Dawn. So James, I think uh, I think we're probably getting to the point where I want to talk about some Jade City. Uh, do you want to bring anything else up before we, before we get into the book a little bit? So I just have two little factoid things here that I'll drop on you guys. The baby in the sequence, in the, in the baptism sequence, is actually Sofia Coppola, who is Francis Ford Coppola's daughter, and would go on to direct like fantastic films like, like Lost in Translation. Really? And who also wow. plays... Um, uh, Michael's daughter in Godfather Part Three, mm-hmm. which she oh, did wow. not get much acclaim for. In fact, was disparaged <laughs> for her for her acting in Godfather Part Three. But um, perhaps that pushed her into being a director, where she got a lot more success. Yeah, and I think she's a great director. I I really enjoy her films. The The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two had the first numbered U.S. sequel title. So this mm-hmm. is the beginning of sequel titles which is kind of an interesting thing to think about because it's like, do we have the Godfather to thank for all the sequels that we get nowadays? <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting because this does feel like a movie that doesn't, that is so self-contained that um, I was always surprised. Now that I've seen it and I know the story from the novel, it makes sense that there's a part two. But uh, yeah, I think from the outside looking in, I was always surprised this was the kind of movie that had a sequel. You know what I mean? This feels like a standalone film that doesn't need any sequel. I think in some ways that helped the sequel because the sequel could be mm. its own thing. And yeah. I think Godfather Part Two is one of the few sequels that um, really lives up to, you know, the, the first movie. And that's a pretty short list. Mm-hmm. And it includes like Aliens and Terminator 2 and like, you know, not very many <laughs> the, other the films Knight. besides, right, besides that. Yeah. Um, but Godfather Part Two. uh went on to win Best Picture, which I think is, I don't know if you know, James, if there's any other sequels that have won Best Picture. Um, but mm. I think that it was because uh, because part one didn't need part two, that part two had the freedom to do its own thing. Yeah, I'm not sure about the sequel Best Picture thing. I'm going to look at it right now. Though. So uh, some of them that have won is, are Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. Return of the King run? Best, best Picture? Yeah, Best Picture. I didn't know that. Wow. Wow, I didn't know that either. No, other nominees include The Bells of St. Mary's, The Godfather Part 3, The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, Toy Story 3, and Mad Max Fury Road. So those are all nominees, but didn't Those are nominees, but not winners. Okay. So until until Return of the King won, I guess it would have been the only. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, one last little fact. The horse head in the famous scene is actually a real mm-hmm. horse head. A real horse head? Yes. Oh my gosh, I'm not going to tell my wife that. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty crazy, right? Like, And like, I was like, I mean, I didn't know that until this viewing. I was always like, wow, that's a good looking prop there. But yeah. apparently somehow they got a horse head, which is pretty fucked what? up, honestly. Wow. <laughs> wow. Well, that makes um, 
Waltz's screaming in the bed feel much more authentic. Yeah. Let's hope that a, let's hope that a, a horse died of some natural cause. I believe it was <laughs> like used the body. I believe what it was is it was like set to slaughter. It was set for slaughter anyway, or something like that. But they don't. I mean, do they set horses to slaughter often? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm just I, I just am relaying the facts. <laughs> You're just the messenger. I hope that they didn't kill a horse and just to just to get the shot. I, I will say that for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's hope not. Um, so I do want to, to, to bring up Jade City here a little bit because to me there's a lot of interesting uh, comparisons that can be drawn. Uh, but first, I just want to ask you, like, where where in particular you feel like you took the most inspiration from this from this movie and this story? The inspiration came from a few different places, most um, of all thematically. So the thing I've admired about The Godfather for a long time is the fact that um, it is, at its core, it's a family saga. And that was something that I wanted to write. I, had, I wanted to write something that um, had kind of the, these, these gritty elements and this violence and this war, but at its core, it was a story of family. And so that was kind of what inspired me to to um, to write Jade City. And then beyond that, um, you know, there were there were elements of The Godfather um, and maybe mobster movies in general that clearly made it into the story. I mean, be, so many of the narrative turning points of The Godfather revolve around um, assassination attempts and death and betrayal. And so those clearly came um, into play in um, the plot line for my book. And then um, there were there were dynamics in the sibling relationships that I loved, and that I wanted to um, to bring um, into my work in a in a different way. I didn't. I never wanted to do a retelling of The Godfather. Um, I wanted to. Uh, take the themes and some of the interpersonal relationships that I loved in The Godfather and spin them in a new way, in a new setting, in a fantasy um, milieu and and tell, uh, you know, my own story. Um, so one of the things, you know, that, that I love in The Godfather is this, like, the prodigal son returning. And, yeah. um, and also the, is that Shay? Right. So that was, that was one element, obviously that <laughs> yeah. I loved. I loved, you know, the, um, the, the sort of, um, impulsive emotional, um, aspect of Sonny and the sort of chosen family member, the adopted family member of Tom. So those elements yeah. all made them their way into my story, but, um, but I, I wanted to do something new with them as well. And I think one of the things that I always kind of in my, in I wished for um, in sort of like an AU version of The Godfather was, you know, we never got to see uh, really Michael and Sonny work together, right? Because mm -hmm. Sonny is, is the like, um, you know, the big hearted, uh, uh, emotional um, uh, character who, uh, who's feared um, by their enemies. And Michael's kind of like the cold calculating one. Um, but they never overlap in their leadership because as soon as Michael commits this crime, he's sent off to Sicily. He doesn't come back until after Sonny is dead. So I wanted to also play with that idea of like having some of these characters, um, elements interact in different ways. So, you know, I, I wanted to have a situation in my own story where, you know, two very different siblings with 
of different styles have to yeah. navigate their relationship. So, um, so yeah, my, my, um, inspiration, uh, came largely, um, sort of a high level, but then also some of just the, like the character, um, elements that I wanted to mix and match and put in like a com kind of completely different story. So in our last episode, we invited our listeners to read along with us. And and I'm, I think I'm around halfway in the novel now, and I'm going to finish it for the next one. So I definitely want to bring the, some stuff back up um, as I know more of the story. But right now, um, I still don't know where these plot lines are going. Um, but yeah, I, some observations I had while reading and being so steeped in The Godfather was, was definitely with uh, Hilo being very Sunny-esque. Um, and then also, uh, was it, uh, Lon, um, being, he, he reminded me a little bit of like a mixture between Tom and Michael in a way. And, 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 um, and then, yeah, you, then you have Shay come in, which I was so glad to have Shay and Wynn, especially, uh, like some, some women characters in a world like this and, and seeing how that can interplay with, with sort of a patriarchal system. Um, very cool. And like you said, elements of certain characters, like, there was no one-to-one -one comparison. It was always like this one, this, this character is kind of a mix between multiple characters. Right. Um, which is, which is good because I didn't want, um, you know, I did not take any of the characters wholesale and be like, Oh, I'm right. just going to make a character like this. But <laughs> I wanted to take some of the elements that I did, some of the relationships, the play off of different personalities and, uh, and play with those. Um, and, you know, still have the characters feel very much themselves. So yes. Um, you know, Helos is, has kind of that emotionality that I loved about Sonny, but he's very much his own character, and you'll sort of see that happen. Uh, you'll, you'll sort of see what happens with him later mm. on. Um, so, so yeah, I, I you know, there's a, there's a lot of things that went into um, into this book, uh, inspiration wise. Um, but and I also took inspiration from you know a lot of other. Um, for other shows, other, you know, research that I did. Uh, but, um, you know, I, like I said before, a lot of the things that people pick up on are the thematic elements of the, of the Godfather, the feel, um, yeah. of it being this, like this violent family chronicle. Yeah. And if I can, I mean, if our listeners are still on the fence about it, just let me tell you, there is the Jade and the way it works and these characters possessing it and the powers it gives them, uh, combined with sort of this uh, kung fu uh, sort of martial arts type of of hand to hand combat, just makes for some really exciting action sequences. Um, all at the same time that you're getting this really cool family drama. So I absolutely recommend it. Um, and then and then you can all understand uh, how how this connects so strongly to the, to the Godfather, but is its own brilliant thing that. I hope is going to be uh, adapted into its own uh, piece that we'll be able to cover at some point. So I actually did have a question as well. Um, you were saying that uh, one of the major one of the major uh, inspirations was was the Godfather. I was wondering, are there uh, is there one or two other ones that are like really that you get a lot of? Because you'd said like Hong Kong action films or like or that kind of uh, vibe at least, Cause, and I definitely see that. But I'm just wondering if if there are any specifics that people point to. Yeah, so um, you know a lot of the like Johnny Toe films, um, okay. you know like Election and um, oh the Chow Young Fat like eighties gangster films like A Better <laughs> Tomorrow and The Killer, mm -hmm. um, you know Infernal Affairs. So that kind of like vibe of the East Asian um, crime dramas worked in there. Uh, obviously, kung fu films. 
um, and just generally my background as a martial arts um, practitioner went in there a lot. And then uh, traditions from epic fantasy. So I wanted to write an epic mm-hmm. fantasy that was not set in medieval Europe, which is where so many tra- epic fantasies yeah. are set. So um, I wanted to to kind of get the like scheming and the politics and the sort of um, clash of noble houses elements that you see in like Game of Thrones, for example, but put mm-hmm. that in a completely different setting, first of all, a different cultural setting, but then also a different time period. So, um, you know, what what is kind of a, a gangster story without cars and guns and, um, <laughs> you know, street warfare? So I wanted to put it in, in a modern era, kind of like latter half of the 20th century um, post you know, World War II analog. And so uh, it really was this blend of so many influences um, and uh, and a lot of fun to write. At the time I was writing it, I was like, is anyone going to kind of, you know, be the market for this other than me? Like I I really wrote the book that I wanted to write um, because it was a mashup of things that, uh, that influenced me. Well, you got it to a place that I think is incredibly interesting because that milieu is so striking. And, and the, I love there's a certain like uh, the island itself is in like a separate sort of society with separate um, anachronisms uh, or, or, you know, it's kind of stuck at a certain time period when they when the characters go out to the larger world, it seems very different. Um, so it, I don't know, just the interplay of those and, and the mix between modern and, 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 and old fashioned and uh, it's very cool. Absolutely, and and I think a lot of people are gonna are, are have already connected with it, obviously award winning novel. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you guys are enjoying it, and uh, we'll I'd love to hear what you guys think once you're done. Yeah. So, uh, and we invite our listeners to do that as well, and and uh, join us for our next episode, which is going to be the conclusion to our trilogy with Fonda. Um, but once again, uh, thank you so much for joining us. It's it's been it's been a wonderful conversation and and a lot of fun for me. Well, looking forward to the next one. There's so much we could talk about with with the Godfather franchise that it almost seems like a disservice to not like have like a three day seminar on it, which I'm sure film <laughs> students do. James probably had to go through something like that. Um, but you know, there's so much you can talk about. Um, yeah. I I just want to kind of for my final comment, I watched um, a interview with Spielberg, which he said in which he said. He came out of the theater after watching Godfather and he felt like quitting filmmaking. <laughs> he said, how am I ever, you know, going to make something that rivals the level of storytelling that I've just seen? And coming from Steven Spielberg, I just I had to laugh because that's such a familiar feeling for authors, right? <laughs> you, yes, yes. You you know, you read a book or you 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 take in a story that you're like, I uh, why am I even bothering? And uh, and so <laughs> I just thought that was that was pretty impressive as a statement yeah. of how influential this film has been. That someone like Steven Spielberg would come out of the film and be like, "I feel like quitting." Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. and someone like Fonda Lee says that she feels the same way at times when reading books. So I mean, I mean, I think that is actually inspirational for a lot of writers uh, who are who are who feel that way, right? To know that it is a common thing and that it doesn't. It, it I mean. It doesn't really mean anything other than than people are doing amazing work and and that it is possible and that um, I think there's also an element of like you see people's final product right versus you're probably in the middle of a of a of a, of a sloppy first draft and you're comparing it to this polished piece so um, that's always going to be a, a a hard thing to do right and uh, it's it, it's just 
amazing that a film um, can have so much uh, lasting resonance, right? Like this came out in 1972. The book came out a few years before that. And I remember seeing, I think on like, you know, American Film Institute list of most influential American films ever that it was like number two um, because <laughs> it, is, it, ha- it, it basically redefined that genre. Um, yeah. and you know, I, I, I'm sure you could find umpteen, um, directors, filmmakers that came afterward that would have said that, uh, that Coppola's work influenced them. Um, and the same goes for, for writers, right? Like, yeah. you know, you, we're, you, we look back on stuff after you come out of that, like, oh, I can never do anything like this. It also still seeps into your brain and influences your work afterwards. Absolutely. I love to see the, uh, the the camaraderie, like the competition, yet the camaraderie in the arts community. Like the way that you can look at something and be like, oh my God, it's just so incredible and be so proud and so happy for somebody like that. Like the, you talked about Spielberg, like the fact that they are that friendly and like they're that like, and yet they go on to each have their own incredible careers. is just like, it warms my heart. So, Well, I think there, we, we talked about, I think it was in The Shining. Um, there, I believe there's an element to doing things that are very difficult in, in the arts where the, the closer you get to a certain like expert level, the more you recognize expertise. And so someone like Spielberg is in a particular position to recognize how brilliant The Godfather is because he's doing the same work. And I think for writers, there's that same effect of like the more you get into writing and the more you're doing it, the more you start to look at the truly great novels and go, oh, my God, the level of difficulty that they have pulled off is really astounding. Or someone who hasn't really tried writing might not be able to quite recognize it in the same way, at least. Yeah, you get much more attuned to the craft. And I think you also appreciate um, how hard it is. I mean, yeah. even just like listening to some of the, and the fact that like Coppola had to fight for pretty much every artistic decision in that film. Um, yeah. I mean, that stress alone, like that should have been somebody else's job on their own. You know what I mean? To be able to, to juggle both things, it's a miracle that the movie even got finished. Yeah, there's a few films out there that I'd say like everything just worked together, like the acting and um, the script and the um the sound and the lighting everything kind of worked together and and hit that sweet spot and i'd say the godfather is one of those this has been a joy to talk about and and i'm really looking forward to next week and watching part two which i will be watching for the first time before before we record so very exciting well thank you so much for coming on fonda thank you guys talk to you again soon so this week, we wanted to thank one of our newest patrons, uh, Jamie D. We really appreciate your support, and we want to thank all our patrons for making this uh, podcast possible. Yeah, thank you, Jamie. We really appreciate your support. If you wanted to become a patron as well, you can go to patreon.com forward slash ink to film. You can find out about that uh, bonus episode about The Thing 2011 that we just did. Uh, yeah, I forgot we actually now. mentioned that Yeah, in the episode. <laughs> Another way to support the podcast, it doesn't cost any money at all, is leaving us a rating and a review on either iTunes or on Facebook or anywhere else you can leave them, and it helps spread the word and get it out to more listeners, and we would really appreciate it. Also, if you wanted to connect with us online, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at Ink to Film. Uh, we have a we have a pretty active group called the Council of Inklings on Facebook that you should definitely join if you're interested, because we like to post things about ink and film, books and movies and TV <laughs> shows and things like that, so look out for that. 
Yeah, we'll be posting soon about uh, probably like our holiday special episode and, and not last looks, like our Christmas episode and trying to figure out what project we're going to do. I'm going to put a few options up. So if you want to join that, you can you can participate in that vote. If you wanted to send any questions or feedback or anything like that for the for our last looks episode at the end of the year or just in general, you can send those to inktofilm at gmail.com. Or, or if you have any questions for Fonda, we're going to have her back on next week. So that's going to be your last chance. Send them in to us too. Thank you to AJ Pro and Universal Free Beats for the use of our intro and outro music. And thanks again to Fonda Lee for coming on and talking with us. It's It's been an awesome time sh- uh, doing this movie with having her on as a guest. It's been so cool. So thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, another great conversation. I- I'm so happy with how this how this conversation went. So thank you so much. All right. Until next time. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.